Hello, and welcome to the Good Life Community Church podcast. Wherever you are listening, we hope that you'll be encouraged, challenged, and that you would hear the invitation to be a part of the transformative work of God. We're going to attempt over the coming weeks to do a series that we're calling Liberating Revelation. And it's a big task, it's a big challenge, because the book of Revelation is a complex, confusing, bewildering, interesting, fascinating, wonderful, extraordinary book in the Bible, and one of the most misinterpreted, misunderstood, um, controversial books in the Bible. And we're calling it Liberating Revelation because it's more about us being liberated in the way that we understand it and liberating ourselves and misunderstandings that actually get us off course from the core mission that Jesus has invited us into as his followers. And so I want to begin immediately by reading the first verses from this book. It's the last book that you have in the Bible. And we're going to read verses 1 to 3. Revelation The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything that he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy I'll take that. And blessed are those who hear it and take it, this is the most important part, and take it to heart and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. I'll unpack over the coming weeks what that phrase, the time is near, means. Because it might not be what you think it means when you read it today. Because this was written thousands of years ago to a particular community of people, which we'll unpack in the next few minutes. So I want to begin today because um, I don't know about you, but when we think about the book of Revelation, for a lot of people, this is a book that when we talk about it, and we talk about this idea of the end times, which I'll also address in a moment about why we use that phrase or why people use that phrase. For some people, when they think of this book, they feel scared about it. Now, I don't know if anyone feels like that this morning, but that's how I felt growing up in church. For some people, it's a book that's really confusing. I would put probably most of us in that category. Um, and for some people, it's a book that we just think, Ugh, too hard basket, I'm just going to ignore this because I actually don't quite understand what on earth all this bizarre imagery of dragons with multiple heads and lambs with seven eyes and all the different imagery that's in this book. I don't know what it's got to do with the fact that today I've got to work out how to get some money, to get some food, to feed my hungry kids in the hope that they will behave well and we can get to the end of the day and make it. (sighs) And then you pick your Bible up and the Bible's reading for the day is like a passage out of here and you're like, what? What am I meant to do with this? Anyone relate to what I'm talking about? 
Now, when I was young, I grew up in a church environment and culture that had a particular way of reading the book of Revelation and some of Jesus' teaching and some of the teachings in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and the book of Zechariah. And in particular, one verse that Paul addresses in the book of Thessalonians. And we're going to spend seven weeks looking at the book of Revelation and looking at what is the book of Revelation trying to say to us and how do we interpret that in terms of some of the common ideas that I were taught growing up, which I've come to understand as being quite unhelpful and not actually central to and sometimes even nothing to do with whatsoever what the text is actually about. I want to show you this first image up on the screen here of three movies that when I was in year seven, we watched that youth group. And if you've been around church land long enough, you may have seen or heard or had the terrifying experience of watching these horror movies. They were supposed to be a Christian movie set that unpacked the end times as the authors of these movies and this theory understood it. The first one was A Thief in the Night, and um, you'll notice there there's a van. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, The second movie was A Distant Thunder, and the third movie was The Image of the Beast. And the basic storyline is based on an idea that, uh, or a particular reading of the book of Revelation, and also a verse in Thessalonians, which I'll get to in just a moment, that there is going to be an end-time tribulation It's going to go for about seven years, and there's all these different theories about this tribulation. But there's going to be this thing that happens called a rapture, a word that's not actually in the Bible. And what's going to happen is, depending on your view of whether you are a pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation believer, the rapture may happen at any of of those points. Now, most Christians like the idea of the pre-tribulation idea because that means you get raptured, which is a way of saying you disappear from the earth at this random moment, which is very scary because you see it in the movie happen. And it's quite terrifying because the way it starts is that all these Christians just just start disappearing. And so there are people in planes and they're Christians and they disappear, including the pilot. It's a bit traumatic. And there are people walking up a hill and one person disappears and there are people in their homes and they just disappear and then someone comes in and the mix master is still going but there's no one there. Anyone remember any of this stuff? Now, a lot of this was based around teaching that was common as you have a look at this next slide from a very famous book in the 70s and 80s called The Late Great Planet Earth. You've probably got it on your bookshelf or was passed on to you by a parent or someone or you picked it up at a secondhand bookstore because this was a massive bestseller in its era. We had multiple copies, multiple versions of the cover at my house and on the, on the bookshelves. And then there was the series, uh, the Left Behind series, which was the modern version in the 90s and 2000s of the first series that I was traumatized watching growing up. How many have seen or read the books, the Left Behind series? Can I get a show of hands? Yep, see how popular it is? 
Um, you could get these anywhere. It's, it's, you know, you've got Nicolas Cage in there. We've got our buddy Kurt there uh, in the picture. Remember him from Growing, is it Growing Pains? He was everyone's favourite Christian actor back, at the day, back in the day. And so these books were um, basically teaching and sharing this particular way of reading the Scripture. Now, some of you may remember this song by an artist in the 1970s called Larry Norman, who wrote a famous song called Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? Anyone remember that? I won't be able to get away with asking that question tonight. So, um, because young people tonight will be going, who? Um, So Larry Norman was this guy who became a Christian. He was a bit of a hippie. You'll see him in a a video in just a moment. Had real long blonde hair for his entire career. And uh, he wrote that song, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? Pretty cool, fun song. And then he wrote this other famous song called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. It was one of my favourite songs in the 80s and 90s. I loved it. Anyone remember that song? It's a really nice song. And it's got nothing to do with what's in Scripture. Now, when I say that, I know that's jolting. Because if that's the only thing you've ever heard or been taught, and you're very committed to that idea... What I'm saying right now couldn't be a little bit jolting. So I want to just acknowledge that for a moment. This happened to me when I went to Bible college. Because I grew up in church services and services I loved. Well, we had famous preachers come from America and New Zealand. There are famous ones from New Zealand. Um, and one in particular called Barry Smith. Has anyone ever heard of that guy? Oh, wow, see? Maybe we all went to the same church. Anyway, and he had this big banner that would go along the back, and it would tell you the timeline of the end times. And as a kid, I was fascinated by it, I was scared by it, and I was freaked out by it. I was so engaged in this that every single night, because I was scared that the rapture was going to come and that I would be left behind, and in the movies, if you're left behind uh, and you don't take the mark of the beast, which is the 666 symbol, which we'll unpack next week, um, the only way you can survive is to get your head chopped off. And it's very terrifying and scary. So I didn't want that to happen. So every single night I was praying and asking God to forgive me for my sins for that day. And it, it's just not, it wasn't a great way to live. And then one day I was in the city of Sydney selling lollies in buildings, um, buildings that said no hawkers and, you know, no one's doing that stuff that we weren't doing. We were just selling lollies to raise money for the Blind Sporting Association and avoiding security in the buildings. And um, when we came down and we'd emptied our basket of lollies, we went out the front and I was sitting there waiting for the bus that came along to pick up all us kids that were selling lollies in the building. I I don't know if it was legal, but anyway. um, We're sitting there and a white van pulled up in front of me that looked exactly like the white van from the movies that I watched. And I'm telling you, my heart raced so hard. I was freaking out going, it's happening. It's happening. They're here. And I was just internally just beside myself all the way home thinking, man, it's happening. And then I'd get home and I'd see the news on TV about wars happening in the Middle East and all the stuff, which is still happening now today. And, And everything was being reinforced and it was actually really terrifying. It was very terrifying for a young guy who became a Christian in our church when I was first a young youth pastor. He'd come to faith and he'd heard his first teaching on the end times as he understood it. And he heard that um, the rapture could happen at any moment. And he went home one day uh, and he lived in a house with uh, a few other guys. When he came into the house, the doors were open and there was no one in the house. 
And he freaked out. So he rang our pastor. And when he rang, it was ringing and ringing and ringing like on the old phones. And then finally the phone answers. And it's our pastor. And he's just like, oh my goodness. I'm so relieved. I thought the rapture had happened and I'd been left behind. And his pastor said, it has. And I've been left behind too. And uh, that story went on in our church back then for ages. Um, he was a bit of a joker, our pastor. Um, but that hadn't happened, of course. Now, where does this idea come from? Before we jump into Revelation, I want to address this because this is one of the key things that actually undergirds so much of people's understanding of how the book of Revelation is to be read. And something that's important to understand is the idea of the rapture does not appear at all in the book of Revelation. The idea actually comes from one verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, well, technically, potentially two, but one particular verse, uh, verses 16 and 17, which we'll put on the screen. It says, For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, this one verse is the main verse that people build a rapture idea around, that we're going to like, at, at this random moment, we're actually going to like just disappear, and we're going to meet Christ in the air when he comes. Now, this is the only reference. There is another reference that sometimes people make as a case for it in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is talking about uh, coming judgment, and the, 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 there's a parallel that he makes to the story of Noah and the flood as a, as a form of judgment, and how when the waters, the flood waters come, uh, one will be swept away and one will be left behind. So people use that as an example, except the, the problem is it's the reverse of what people think it is, because the ones that are left behind in Noah's stories are the righteous ones. And in the this tribulation version, the ones that are left behind are the ones who weren't faithful and didn't get caught up into the sky with Jesus. In other words, the rapture. Now, let me ex just explain this just for a couple of moments because this is worth just understanding as we sort of unpack this a little. When Paul's talking about this description in 1 Thessalonians, this is like a, as N.T. Wright says, a brightly coloured version of what he says in other passages in 1 Corinthians 15 and Philippians chapter 3 about Jesus' coming or appearing and how those who are alive will be changed or transformed so that their mortal bodies will become incorruptible and deathless. This is the resurrection of our bodies. And this is what Paul's intending to do in Thessalonians. But here, what he does is he borrows imagery from various biblical and also current political sources so that his readers in Thessalonica actually can see this picture and they see it as metaphor. They see it as, as something that's telling them about this wonderful thing that's going to happen, which is Christ coming back. The redemption and restoration of all things, God coming back to fully bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So first Paul echoes the story of Moses coming down the mountain with the Torah and the trumpet sounds. And then second, he's echoing the story in Daniel chapter 7, in which the people of the saints of the Most High, that's the one like, looking like the Son of Man, they're vindicated over their enemies, and they're raised up to sit with God in glory. 
Again, it's not literal, it's a metaphor, it's a picture of what God is doing. And thirdly, what Paul is doing is he's, he's kind of conjuring up these images of an emperor visiting a colony or a province. So a common practice of the day is if an emperor or someone from a different region came to a city, the people would go out to the emperor to welcome the emperor, the returning king. And they would usher them back. They would welcome them back into the city. This, the context of what Paul is saying in Thessalonians here is not that we're going to literally go up into the clouds, hang with Jesus, kind of cloud surfing for a little while, and then go off into some heavenly place while the rest of the world crashes and burns and struggles through this tribulation. It's actually Jesus' declaration that he's coming back and we're going to welcome him with, with incredible joy because the victory is taking place and he will come back to establish fully his kingdom on earth, which is the grand story of the book of Revelation. Now, in coming weeks, there's going to be an opportunity for Q&A and reflection, and we're going to do some extra things to unpack this in more detail because we don't have um, as much time as what we want because you could talk about this stuff for hours. But I want to jump now into the book of Revelation itself and actually kind of give a framework for this um, for us today. Are you with me? All right. Now, it's important for me to say this. If you don't agree or you're going, what? That's a good thing. But what I mean by that is, in Acts 17, 11, it says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they heard what Paul, the Apostle Paul, right? They heard what he was saying, and, but they went and searched the Scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. So what I'm encouraging you to do is wrestle with this. Read, ask questions. Don't everyone send me an email. I probably won't be able to get to them all. But w w let's discuss this. Because I don't want this to be a, uh, you can't talk about this. We actually have to learn how to be able to wrestle and debate and discuss and go, what? What he's saying is nothing like I've ever heard before. I don't know if I agree with it. I don't know if it's true. All my favorite preachers say this. He's saying this. What do I do about that? Okay. So I just want to invite that and say, it's okay. This is the kind of community we need to be. Is that all right? So who wrote the book of Revelation? Most likely... Um, it was written by John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, who wrote the Gospel of John, apparently, and the letters uh, of John. Some people say that it could be a different John, maybe a, some kind of messianic Jewish prophet who traveled around and taught the early church. So when we look at this book of Revelation, the question is, what is Revelation? What is this book? Well, the word literally Revelation, which is the first word in the book, is the Greek word apocalypsis which is translated revelation. It means a revealing. It's not a word about how the end of the world happens. It's almost like a peeling back so that we can see God's grand story of creation and what he's intending to do. And we can actually have hope as we see through this extraordinary vision where our hope lies as we journey through history. Another way of saying this is, this is God's perspective of history and current events viewed in light of history's final goal or outcome according to Jesus and his purposes. Brian Zand is a, a 
a pastor and teacher, and he says some, a really interesting thing. He says, it's important to keep in mind that everything is told in the language of symbol in the book of Revelation. Everything. From the seven-eyed lamb and the seven-headed dragon to the burning lake and the bejeweled city, everything is encased in symbol. If some people admit that the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes is obviously symbolic, but insist that Jesus riding on a flying white horse is literal, they're going to have to explain their system of interpretation. Or if they claim that Jesus is going to wage a literal war upon his return, commonly understood as the Battle of Armageddon, but the sword depicted as proceeding from his mouth is symbolic, again, they're going to have to justify the logic of their system. The book of Revelation is this apocalyptic-style literature that uses hyperbole and symbol and even as some people call it, prophetic comedy. As Brian Zahn says, he says, what we have here is a hideous, hideous monsters are finally conquered by a little lamb. In the original language, it infers, a slaughtered lamb who lives again. This is a form of prophetic comedy, a challenging of the empire. And throughout the book, the number seven is incredibly significant. Seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John weaves these sevens into every single part of the book. And he does so in the beginning part of the book when he talks about the seven-fold uh, spirit and uh, the seven forms of um, judgments that are poured out, which we'll get to over the coming weeks. What the book is not is a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Now, I grew up in the 80s when everyone was trying to predict when Jesus was going to come back. And even the preachers that said, well, we can't know the day or the hour, but we could know the year. Ever heard that one? Some people were saying it's going to happen in this year. I Google it and have a look sometimes at all of the attempts throughout history that people have made, most of them in the last hundred years, about when Jesus is going to return. And then the massive, crazy loops they have to do in their communication to try and say how they slightly got it wrong and that it's actually always going to be just a little bit further ahead than where we are right now. This is not the point of the book. It's using symbols from Hebrew scriptures that mean things to its original readers to guide them in how to think about the situation that they find themselves in. It's not the end of creation, but the end of sin, of death and empire. And it's a good news story. Now, this is important to understand because when we ask the question, when was it written? This book was written during the reign of, Ro of the Roman emperor Domitian, AD 81 to 96. Now, only a generation earlier... We have the reign of Nero from AD 54 to 68, who was a cruel and wicked Roman leader. And there'd been a fierce persecution of Christians during that time. And it was during Nero's infamous persecution that both Peter, the apostle, and Paul were executed in Rome. And it's into this context that Paul is writing to Christians 
to, uh, sorry, that John is writing to Christians to share this letter and this story to encourage them. Now, the beginning part of the book of Revelation begins by talking about seven churches, which again has symbolic meaning, but they're literal churches in this context that are in what we would call Western Turkey. There's a picture of this on the screen. And we read about this in Revelation chapters 1 to 3. And uh, in a couple of weeks' time, Hannah's going to be unpacking this for us and what those messages are. But this was like a circular letter that went around. They all got to hear what the prophecy or the words of God were saying to each of these communities. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church because some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence and others were morally compromised. Some people were eating ritual meals and sleeping around and involved in pagan temples and rituals. But among some of these churches, some of them remained faithful to Jesus and they were suffering persecution and harassment, even violence. And this letter was a letter to them to encourage them to be faithful to the way of Christ. Now, I want to spend a moment just unpacking some of the key characters of the book, because as you start reading through the book of Revelation, you're going to come across all these characters and you're going to be like, who are these people and what are these symbols and how do they work together? And one of the ways that I want to unpack this uh, is with the help of a New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight. He talks about uh, these main characters in his book, a recent book on the book of Revelation, and he kind of divvies them up into two different teams, Team Lamb and Team Dragon. Now, Team Lamb, the main characters is God on the throne, the Lamb who is Christ, the seven spirits, most understood as the Holy Spirit and the seven missions of the Holy Spirit, the seven churches, the witnesses of uh, the two witnesses and the 144,000, which we'll unpack a little bit later too, the four living things that hang around the throne, the 24 elders, which is a symbol, and all the angels. This is Team Lamb, okay? Now, Team Lamb, in this unfolding story, is in a battle against Team Dragon. Babylon, which is a key phrase that you'll see throughout the book, is a symbol for Rome. But not just Rome then, but for anything that resembles Rome throughout history. Anytime there is any oppressive empire... Babylon is a reference to its powers and its dictatorial, oppressive system that stands utterly opposed to the way of Team Lamb. We also have, and here's what's commonly referred to as the unholy trinity. The dragon, who is referred to as Satan or the devil, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. And we'll talk about them a little bit more next week in our passage, in our sermon so understanding the characters, we then need to look at, okay, what's the actual plot of this story? And this is the fundamental question that we're journeying with as we go through the book of Revelation. Will Jesus' followers faithfully endure the threat of Babylon and inherit the renewed world that God is creating and has already begun creating through the inauguration of his resurrection life? This is the question and this is, the, this is what we're unpacking over these coming weeks. Now, history's pattern, you don't have to be a genius to know this, is that all human kingdoms, 
become Babylon eventually. And they need to be resisted. You see it over and over again. And a good definition for Babylon or empire is any system that uses violence, military power over others to oppress, economic power over others to oppress and control in ways that ends up destroying shalom, which is the very purpose of God for all humanity to be able to experience. So how do we actually then read this text? What should be our, our approach? Well, it's important to understand because a lot of people say, and I've had people say this to me, that the Bible's not political and that the book of Revelation is not political and that the gospels aren't political. Nothing could be further from the truth. The gospels are radically political. The disciples of Jesus and their writings are very political. I'll give you an example. Every time they sing or we sing Jesus is Lord, it's highly political. Because this was the phrase that was used for Caesar. Caesar is Lord. The moment you say Jesus is Lord, you are declaring that Caesar is not Lord. And now there is going to be tension. Eugene Peterson uh, famously wrote in his book, uh, Unpacking the, Gospel, uh, the Book of Revelation, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. In other words, this politics is not, uh, well, are we on the left side or the right side? This is a politic that's not of this world. This is a politic that subverts every form of left, right, center, it doesn't matter what, whenever it opposes or goes against the purposes of Jesus. So let's uh, unpack this a little bit more. So the first part of Revelation, in the first three chapters, we have the letters that go out to the churches. And then in chapter four of Revelation, we have this incredible picture of the throne room. John has this vision of the, it's almost like, whoa, he sees this incredible um, imagery. And it's, it's the throne of God and all the people worshiping. And then in chapter five, we get to what's going to be our key text today that I'm going to finish with in a moment. And this is the idea of a scroll that has seven wax seals. And we're going to read this together for just a moment. Revelation 5, 1 to 6. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look into it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw, what does it say that he saw? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. Now, here's the fascinating thing about this particular passage. 
How we read the book of Revelation has got so much to do with how we understand this particular passage. When John is wondering, or in the vision, who is the one who is worthy to open the scroll that, un, that reveals the way that God is going to redeem and restore all things, the way that God's purposes for humanity are going to be unfolded? They, realize they, they can't find anyone who's worthy to do it. And then someone calls out and says, hey, it's the Lion of Judah, which is a reference to the tribe of Judah, which was their symbol for that tribe. Now remember in Old Testament days, the hope of the Israelites was that God would bring a Messiah who would liberate them from their oppressors. And they thought it was through military takeover, which is why so many people were disappointed when Jesus turns up on the scene and he's nothing like what they were hoping. His ways are the opposite. He doesn't use military power and force. What does he do? He actually gives his life away. He says, love your enemies. He teaches the whole Sermon on the Mount, which is this like completely counterintuitive way to be what they thought a powerful Messiah would be. But the symbol they had to represent this was the lion. But almost all major New Testament scholars today say that this passage here is one of the most profound things and how we come to understand our faith and how we see and live our lives as followers of Jesus. Because... In the book of Revelation, apart from this verse, there is no lion in the book, only a lamb. The lamb is referred to 28 times in the Revelation. So when someone says it's the lion of Judah, what they're doing is they're saying there's a direct line here, which is a reference to Jesus through the line um, of Israel. But now when John looks, he doesn't see a lion he sees a slaughtered little lamb, which is another kind of way of saying, this is not like what you think. This is so different to what you might have been hoping for or how you thought this story is going to unfold. The lion is in fact the lamb. Now, if we're committed to, like I have been, where I wanted a lion tattoo... And I loved Aslan from all the C.S. Lewis books. What you've got to understand as we're going to see as we unpack this through the coming weeks is that when we look at the book of Revelation, what we're about to see is a major contrast between Babylon and the city of God, between the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb, a choice between war or peace, Compromise or faithful lamb-like resistance. In other words, Jesus doesn't undermine the Sermon on the Mount when he comes back and people say, he's get, he, he died as a lamb, but he's coming back as a, as a lion warrior. No, he's not. He's coming back, riding on a white horse, a victorious horse, and he doesn't wage a battle, a literal battle. He actually judges with the sword of the word of God. And the nations are humbled, not because of the judgments, but because the followers of the lamb lay their lives down in the way of the lamb and they refuse to walk in the way of empire and the systems of this world. And the nations are humbled and they come to repentance. This is the challenge of this book. And next week, I'm going to continue this on 
So this is going to be like a pause, dot, dot, dot. Because next week we're going to unpack the Battle of Armageddon. We're going to talk about the Mark of the Beast and 666 and all of that stuff and what it means. But I want to finish today by telling you this. This is a story of good news. This is a story of beauty. This is a story that's truly subversive to the empires of this world. It's a challenge and a threat to them and their ways. It's a challenge and a threat to every single person who calls themselves a Christian and wants to live their Christian life out following the way of the beast, which is a way of power and using their authority over others to oppress. The challenge we have is to follow our lives in the way of the Lamb into new creation into the new Jerusalem that God is beginning to form and we get to participate in it. So every single day this week, whenever whenever you get a choice about how to respond to a situation, the message from today is this. Let us remember that we are the followers of the slaughtered lamb who is victorious, who lays down his life cross-shaped sacrificial love and God raises him up to resurrection life and it's in his way that we follow. So when you are tempted to use your power in an unhealthy way over your children or over your workmates or over anyone else or you find yourself saying, yes, let's take out that evil nation that's taking on the nation that we like and we prefer and we think a part of our way, Let us be humbled and find ourselves saying, what does it look like to walk in the way of the Lamb? What does it look like for us to love our enemies? What does it look like for us to allow the Word of God to transform people's hearts and lives and move towards the new creation that God is inviting us into? Thanks for listening to the Good Life Podcast today. Remember that you can stay up to date with the podcast by subscribing on whichever platform you're listening to right now. If you're interested in our ongoing conversation where we're delving deeper and asking questions about what we're talking about on Sundays, be sure to check out the Pondering episodes in the same feed. Otherwise, we would love it if you could like, follow, and even give us a five-star review. It all helps in getting the good news out there. You can also head to our website, goodlife.org.au, or our YouTube for video content and resources. Until next time, peace.